Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series this week, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message entitled, The Blood of the Martyrs. So let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to chapter 8, verse 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Tertullian was one of the early church fathers from the second century, and in his work, Apologeticus, or in English, The Defense. It was written in the year AD 197. He's addressing the Roman governor of his province, and here's what he wrote. We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Tertullian lived during a time when Romans demanded that Christians offer tribute to the Roman gods as a sign of loyalty to the empire, and Christians wouldn't do that. And so in order to discourage others from becoming Christians, they made an example of a number of Christians by executing them. But as some have written, that only made others curious. I mean, why would these people die rather than offering up a pinch of salt to Zeus? I mean, what gives? And that fueled interest in the faith, and actually, the persecution was an advertisement for Christianity. For every person that was killed, several more became believers. The quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, has long been debated. You know, in some places and in certain times of persecution, that was definitely not so. You know, it's beyond the scope of this lesson today to talk about why that is, but it is true that today, the persecution of Christians in China has not resulted in the elimination of the church, but rather it has resulted in one of the most amazing stories of the Christian church. In China, it was really true that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And I make mention of this because the events that led to the first Christian martyrdom really did force the church into her global mission. You know, it's hard to imagine what might have transpired had that event not taken place. Would the church continue to have placed ever more energy in the work in Jerusalem, and would the mission's enterprise have lagged behind? And I know that's a matter of speculation. We simply can't know. But this we can know with absolute certainty. What happened because of the first Christian martyrdom really was the seed of the church's global missionary enterprise. So we've been studying Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. You know, we need to remember that he was accused of three things. He blasphemes Moses, he blasphemes God, and he never stops speaking against the temple, saying that Jesus is going to destroy it. We've seen that he has adequately defended himself against the first two charges, but on that last one, that he was speaking against the temple, I would say that Stephen had only begun to make his defense and he wasn't quite finished. Indeed, Right in the middle of the defense, suddenly, or might I say, most abruptly, Stephen brings a full slate of accusations against his accusers and against the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. And so after arguing that the glory of God can't be confined to the temple, well, let's read what the text says next. I'm reading Acts 7, 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You know, Luke, the author of Acts and the man who records this speech, doesn't tell us why suddenly, without finishing his argument on the temple, Stephen suddenly begins his most vigorous attack. 
but I'm assuming that Stephen has been watching his audience well and he knows he's not winning them over. And furthermore, he is not unaware that these are the same men who handed Jesus over to Pilate and who also warned the apostles not to preach of Jesus anymore. And Stephen did not assume he would convince them. So why does he give the long defense? Well, because he's building the case that whether it comes to the glory of God or whether it comes to honoring Moses or whether it comes to understanding the right place and function of the temple, you know, the long, sad history of the majority in Israel was nothing short of open rebellion against God. And seeing the arms crossed before him and the frowns on the faces of those who were listening, Stephen acts not like the defendant at a trial, but like a prophet who has come to declare to a rebellious group of men what God was saying to them. You know, I noticed that when Stephen began his lengthy speech, he started with the words, brothers and fathers, listen to me. But as he's been speaking and as the unyielding faces are looking at him, he now addresses them differently. First, notice what he calls them, you stiff-necked people. You know, the expression stiff-necked is an expression came from the world of farming. In order to plow or to pull a cart, oxen or sometimes horses were required to wear a yoke. Stiff-necked animal refused the yoke, and so the phrase stiff-necked became a metaphor for disobedience to God. It was an unwillingness to submit to God and to his word. You know, Stephen is sure that the men he's facing are not moved by Scripture. They want power. Their affinity for Scripture is merely an outward facade. They will not submit to the yoke of obedience. Well, notice also that Stephen says that they're uncircumcised in heart. And circumcision was a sign of the covenant. You know, every boy was to be circumcised at eight days of age, and it was unthinkable for a Jew to not obey that command. But it did not take long for the prophets to argue that it was possible only to be circumcised in the flesh and not in the heart. Well, Moses spoke that way. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, he said, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And Jeremiah the prophet would later speak in exactly the same way when he'd say, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your heart. See, the point is, you could have a physical sign of Jewishness, but your heart would be rebellious, making you as if you'd never been circumcised. And so Stephen offers these two stinging rebukes, stiff-necked and with uncircumcised hearts. And then Stephen adds a rebuke that must have deeply sunk in. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit, he says. No, I've got no doubt that his hearers must have immediately heard the words of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 63 verse 10 spoke of God's love and mercy towards his people Israel. And yet, in spite of such grace, the people were resisting the Holy Spirit. And then Stephen adds the icing on the cake. As your fathers have done, so you also do. This ties in the entire speech. You know, in the past, Moses was not honored by the majority in Israel. And you, you men who sit in the Sanhedrin to judge me for my attitudes towards Moses and the temple, you're the very ones who show the same contempt for these things as your fathers have done. And then to emphasize the matter further, notice what he says next. Your forefathers, the ones you agree with, are the very ones that murdered the prophets who announced the coming of the Messiah. See, what's left unsaid is what's painfully obvious to everyone in the room. The members of the Sanhedrin were worse than their rebellious forefathers. The forefathers only murdered the prophets who spoke of the Messiah, but these men had bested them. They actually had the blood of the Messiah on their hands. 
That's a brilliant move. You know, it must have really sunk in. Now, before we move on, we do well to stop here and consider the courage of Stephen. See, he's no fool. He knows what kind of reaction is possible if he should say these things. But, and this is key, you know, the members of the Sanhedrin were accustomed to intimidating their victims. And now they found that even though they had condemned Jesus, Jesus was not intimidated by them. Then when they had threatened Peter and John, the disciples of Jesus, those two men were also not intimidated, even in the least. For Peter and John had told them, look, you judge for yourselves whether we should obey God or obey you fellows. And now here's this underling, this mere deacon in the church, showing the same courageous attitude who refuses to be intimidated even for a moment. You know, it does make one reflect on the attitudes of the holy martyrs of the past. You see, these were not men and women who cowered or begged for their lives. Rather, these were men and women who counted it an honor to identify with Jesus, even if that identifying meant that they identified in his death. You know, sometimes when North American Christians read about this attitude among early Christians, I mean, we feel we're looking at a culture that we simply don't understand. See, for us, fear of death is the ultimate fear. But what if we were as convinced of the resurrection as Stephen was? What if our ultimate fear was not death, but failing to please our Savior? How might our lives be different then? This is so important to see, lest we think the martyrdom of Stephen is only seen through the lens of tragedy and the actions of wicked men. Indeed, in order to understand this martyrdom, we need to see not the act of killing this godly man, but rather a godly man who's centered on Christ. And this explains how it can be that the blood of the martyrs can be the seed of the church. For martyrs who would rather testify to Christ than to live, well, they become the cause of a courage that propels the rest of us forward. It tells us that this kind of an attitude really is possible. Easter is a pivotal time in the life of a Christian. The foundation of our faith relies on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Back to the Bible Canada has a two-part video series, an Easter series, available on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel as well as backtothebible.ca. Special musical guests Brian Dirksen and Stephanie Radekop will provide inspirational music, and you'll be refreshed and strengthened in your walk with Jesus under the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. You'll be reminded that Easter offers hope, forgiveness, love, and the promise of eternal life with our Savior. So remember, join us for an Easter series right here on backtothebiblecanada.ca or join us on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. martyrdom of the first Christian martyr did not occur because, you know, a legal court made a tragic wrong decision. Rather, the first martyrdom happened because of a frenzied mob, even though the mob was the Sanhedrin. So let's read Acts 7, 54 to 60. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, in a sense, this event, the stoning of Stephen, outed the Sanhedrin like nothing that could have happened before. They might have argued that they had properly tried Jesus, but of course, you know, in the case of Jesus, it was a kangaroo court. Pilate himself would have dismissed the charges were it not for the fact that he feared a riot would ensue. But all that is true, and yet I suspect the Sanhedrin would have argued it was a legal execution. But here in this case, the Sanhedrin had not even given a verdict. Rage had overcome them, and they simply became a lynch mob. You know, some have questioned how that could possibly have happened. You might remember what had occurred during the trial of Jesus. John 18.31 says, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And the Jewish leaders were right. Capital cases had to be decided by Rome. And the Sanhedrin was aware that if they began to execute people, they would immediately run afoul of Rome, who would demand a very severe accounting of them. In short, in the past, the Sanhedrin had shown that they were very reticent to cross their Roman overlords. Indeed, John 11.50 records the high priest as being concerned that if Jesus was allowed to carry on, acting like he was the Messiah, well, then the Romans would intervene and they might even crush them as a nation. And so we have to remember that the Sanhedrin was always conscious that they were walking a tightrope. If they offended their Roman overlords, they knew all too well that the Romans were capable of being overwhelmingly cruel. So how was such an event, that is mob justice, of pulling Stephen from the Sanhedrin chamber, dragging him through the streets of Jerusalem to the outside of the city walls, then the members of the Supreme Court taking off their robes, grabbing stones, stoning Stephen to death in full view of anyone who might have been there to witness the event. How is that possible? See, the answer has to do with the political climate at that time. We have to assume that Stephen was stoned in the year AD 35, Pontius Pilate was still the governor of Syria, but he had gotten into a great deal of trouble with Rome. He had been involved in a nasty slaughter of Samaritans, and now he was walking on eggshells. One year later, he would be recalled to Rome, and then he would lose his influence and power. So what I'm saying then is the Sanhedrin stoned Stephen at a time when Pilate was rapidly losing all influence in Judea, and the Sanhedrin thought they could do exactly what they wanted to do, and Pilate wouldn't dare intervene. So consider the scene. The Sanhedrin realizes they have considerably more power than ever, and this man, Stephen, not only is not afraid of them, but he quotes scripture at them, and he demands that they repent. And the response, well, it's sheer, blind, vindictive, and passionate rage. You know, at first, they're so angry, they're literally grinding their teeth. But Stephen is not done, not yet. Luke says he's full of the Spirit. He's not concerned with the reaction of men. He's overwhelmed with the glory of God. And at this point, they're still in the chamber of the Sanhedrin, and Stephen is looking up, and you'd think he was looking at the ceiling, but he's not. 
all heaven is opening up to him, and he sees Jesus standing where Jesus said he would stand, at the place of honor and power at the right hand of God the Father. You might remember that Jesus had told the Sanhedrin that very thing. He was before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest had said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And you might remember what Jesus had said and what happened next. And here I'm quoting Matthew 26, 64 to 65. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. See, this statement of Jesus, that he would be at the right hand of power, it was considered blasphemy. And now here's Stephen. And as the Sanhedrin is enraged and grown men so losing all sense of propriety and overwhelmed with rage, they're grinding their teeth. They now hear Stephen saying, I am right now seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of power. Now, normally, Jesus is depicted as sitting at the right hand, but here Jesus has risen to his feet to receive Stephen to himself, and the rage in the Sanhedrin turns to frenzy. You should have noticed two things regarding the death of Stephen. You know, first notice that he calls out to Jesus, receive my spirit. And at that moment, Stephen becomes a model for the death of all who put their hope in Christ. You know, death for a believer is not the cessation of existence. Neither is it soul sleep, where we simply go into a state of unconsciousness until the second coming. See, at the point of death, Stephen calls out to the Lord, receive my spirit. He goes immediately to be with Jesus. Death is the death of the body, to be sure, but not the death of the spirit. The body returns to the earth, but the spirit goes to the one who made it, awaiting the final resurrection. And since we know this, the sting of death is gone, and what's replaced is this longing to see Jesus. The second thing we learn from the death of Stephen is that those who trust in Christ are willing at all times to forgive their enemies. Stephen's desire that his martyrdom would not be charged against his murderers reminds us of Jesus who, while being nailed to the cross, was praying for the men who were nailing him there. Forgiveness is the way of the believer. Now, please notice that our passage says that it was the witnesses who put Stephen to death, and it says that because in the Old Testament law, it was mandated that the witnesses of a crime were to put the criminal to death. And stating things that way is Luke's way of telling us that it was the actual Sanhedrin themselves that stoned Stephen to death. The men throwing the stones had taken off their outer garments and were asking Saul to watch over the garments. They couldn't let their official robes get in the way of throwing the stones with such vigor. Saul or Paul never forgot his role in that affair. Later on, when he became a believer, a faithful servant of Jesus, Paul would say, and here I'm quoting from Acts 22, verse 20, where he says, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. One has to wonder about the reaction of the church. You know, up to this point, the gospel has been growing, and even though there's opposition, the church seems to remain triumphant. But now it becomes clear to all. If you're going to follow Jesus, and if you're going to be involved in spreading the gospel, there's a greater cost to pay than they had up till then experienced. And so if we had lived in that day, we might have wondered. Now that the church has lost its power and the state has turned against it, will the church survive? Will the blood of the martyrs really be the seed of the church?
So we read now Acts 8, 1 to 3. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You know, it's easy to see how from this moment on everything changed. From a church that was growing and making inroads into the wider culture and was on the way to becoming the dominant force in the city of Jerusalem, that one moment to the next, suddenly everything had changed. If you had been meeting in Solomon's colonnade where the church met, you have to assume that worship services were a glorious affair there. So much was happening. You know, you have to imagine the baptisms every week would have been reason enough for praise. The apostles' teaching would have been inspiring and life-transforming. Prayer meetings would have been filled with great earnestness. Miracles were being done to much rejoicing. The poor were cared for. People were finding their place in ministry. Everyone had a story about someone else who had come to Christ. And then in short order, those meetings would have been empty. Christians were being driven out of the city in wholesale fashion. And the religious life of Jerusalem would have been overwhelmingly changed. But this moment, which seemed to be a great defeat, became the glorious moment for the church. And it will be that for every church that considers Jesus more valuable than life itself. Everyone will find that the blood of the martyrs can be the seed for the church. John, let me ask you, isn't martyrdom really just a thing of the past when it comes to the Western church? Why should we be concerned about it at all? Well, it is true that, uh, you know, we have rights and freedoms in the Western church and we should not take them for granted. We should thank God. I thank him for the rights that have been given and the protections that are offered that we should share the faith. Now, there is you know persecution that comes in different ways, but martyrdom uh, in general terms is not the case for us. However, we do know that we still live in a world, and I would say that we're living in a day today when there is a greater martyrdom around the world than ever has been in the Christian church in its history. So for one, I would say that since there is a solidarity between all true believers worldwide, there's only one true church, uh, we should be in prayer constantly for those people who are you know, being called upon to give up their lives, that God would give them courage and faithfulness if that faithfulness comes to the point of death. That awareness should change our own lives as well. So I think martyrdom has much to say to us today. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Beyond Jerusalem right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We know that making trustworthy Bible teaching available to all Canadians is important to you. It is with that in mind that we created the 1119 Fellowship, a monthly giving program. This fellowship program ensures that the true wisdom found in the Bible will continue to be shared and made available for generations to come. One of our 1119 members wrote to say, I know that I can trust what is taught by Dr. Neufeld. This is why we're monthly supporters of this ministry. I've been so encouraged by the teaching of the Bible. The research that has been done by Dr. John has opened my eyes to the truths of the Bible. Thank you. God bless you. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, 
Visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call 1-800-663-2425.